Strategy. Design. Marketing. UX. Digital. Development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. Varun, how are you, my friend? We're here. Rock on. What's new? Well, I'm great. I'm pumped up. Just finished my rowing workout, got my cold shower and ready to go. Who do we have today? <laughs> nice. Today's guest is won many awards as I sit here and look at the, the list from his agency, though. Cannes Lions, Best of Los Angeles Web Developers, Best of Los Angeles Mobile Developers, the OMA, OMMA Awards, Best Microsite, Media Post. He's a managing partner at Wildebeest, Rand Craycraft. Welcome to our podcast, Rand. We're happy to have you. Hey, thanks, Jesse and Varun. Happy to be here. Good. So we like to start off our conversation, as you well know, is the uh, what myth or bogus strategy or misconception would you like to set the record straight on? What do you, what do you got that you're like, really grind your gourds? Isn't that a, that's a family guy, isn't it? Did anyone get the reference? It's, it, it's also timely for Halloween, so I appreciate that. True. <laughs> really smashes um, your pumpkin. How about that? <laughs> you know, my, my myth I want to bust is that a, a bigger agency is a better agency. You know, that, that there's those of us on the smaller side that we always want to be bigger, but then the people in the bigger agency, they want to be smaller. And I, I just want to bust that and point out that just because you have a huge agency doesn't mean that you're going to make more creative work or that the client's going to get more attention. Um, and frankly, the, the agency owners, they're so disconnected from the work that it feels like a corporate job at that point, you know? Um, we're a small team that we, we hover around 12, 15 people. And whenever I talk with uh, the, the bigger agencies that, that we become friendly with and the founders who got these, these companies started, I always ask them, you know, what's, what's the right size? Like at what point during your trajectory were you doing the, the best work and having the most fun and you just would, would go back to it in a heartbeat if you could. And every single one, says 25 people. And this just, it, it's mind blowing. I think, you know, you have a, a several hundred person agency. Isn't that where you want to be? And, you know, of course, I'm not, not going to drop any names here of who that might be, but every single one says 25 is the place where you're doing the best work. You're enjoying it. You know, your team, you're having fun. You're making the most money, frankly. And that's, that just really seems to be the sweet spot. So we're, we're not quite there yet. Little room to grow but I'm, I'm looking forward to, to being that 25 person agency. Are you having a good time at where you're at at the moment? <laughs> I am I'm very, very much in the weeds that uh, at, at our size, uh, my, my partner, Kevin and I are in every single project that we do and have been for seven years. And uh, so it's, it's a lot, but that's important for our agency. And I think that sets us apart because the founders are, you know, in every single project. You know, I'm the person that's selling the project, but I'm also the person that's overseeing it and making sure that we deliver what we promised in the beginning. Why do you think people want to be big then? I mean, there are several agencies who are beyond 100 people. 
um, I mean, why, why, why do you think they want to be big? And um, yeah, then we'll dive into the next one. They want to make more money and that's great. And, you know, I, I get it. I want to win more awards and make more money and, and have a bigger team and, and the visibility that a big agency has. There's nothing wrong with that. And just because 25 is a sweet spot, I can't guarantee that I'm going to stop whenever I get there either. Um, so it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I get it why uh why somebody would want to be bigger yeah that, that's, where, that, that's what i wanted to get at like you know you said 25 is a sweet spot but you are not there yet but once you get there you don't know if you want to grow even bigger or not because your mindset will change it will shift a little bit once you grow and maybe you want to go back to where you are or maybe you want to grow further from there but as of now you feel from the experience from the people you've spoken that 25 sounds like a good number and the reason for that is because you know the, the points you mentioned you are involved you are very much active with every project there's less corporate culture or there's less bureaucracy uh, all of those things would make you more involved in your agency is that what i'm hearing yeah yeah i think so you nailed it it's um it's feeling that investment and still being in the the fabric of your company whenever it's small whenever it grows bigger like this you become the the acquisition targets and your your revenue uh becomes exponentially higher at that point and i get the attractive attractiveness of uh of that kind of growth frankly it probably would be pretty nice to be there one day, but it, it really, it, it resonates whenever I hear these people that I admire so much that have grown giant agencies that they're like, man, what I wouldn't give to go back to being, having 25 people and being in projects and you know, having different stresses, not, not the same stresses that they have whenever they have a giant agency. It's probably one of those things where when you are at that 25, you may not appreciate it, but once you get larger and you're less involved in the things that really brought you to, to this business to begin with, you know, you're aspiring to be up here as for those of you listening, I uh, higher up within the, or, you know, higher, larger, whatever I'm making hand movements that I don't know how to articulate verbally. Um, but, but it's looking back and going, when did, you know, it's like, it's not that the grass is always greener, but it's the idea of like, oh man, it was so much simpler when it was smaller and you were doing work and you were like, not sure what was going to happen and all the fun stuff that goes along with it. I, I do want to ask, how did you get the name Wildebeest? <laughs> That's, I know we talked about in our prep call a little bit, but I don't know if you answered it. So I've been dying to ask you, how did you come up with that name? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. We we love the name. And uh, whenever we were trying to come up with what our agency was going to be called, we we had the, you know, the giant list that anybody starting a company comes up with. And when we started striking things out and landing on a, a shorter list, we realized these things are all living in some kind of way. And we realized that, you know, we want to stand for empathy. We want something that that feels alive. We also want something that feels timeless that, you know, we, we don't want in, in five years to have to go through a rebrand because it was just like so contemporary of a name, you know, that it, it no longer sounds good. Um, so Wildebeest made a lot of sense. And then, you know, you could say the research that came from it, we may have appropriated some of the, <laughs> some of the details of why we like Wildebeest, but, you know, they're very fast one of the fastest land animals. They're, they're beautiful, they're exotic. 
Um, and then what really did it for us was the, the, the team mentality of the swarm intelligence, you know, that these wildebeest, rarely do you just see one. And if you see one, it's like on a Google image that you, you probably don't want to see because it's like National Geographic style. But whatever they're sticking together, the swarm intelligence to, to solve these really challenges, challenging um, obstacles, it, uh, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And so we, we really get behind the, the idea of a wildebeest and uh, the whole team sticking together and, and how beautiful they are. That's a good, that's a great explanation. It's, it's uh, part of the fun of these conversations is creative people come up with creative names. So it's always fun to be able to hear how you got there. Um, you know, a funny thing about this that uh, other people liked it so much that another agency tried to take our name and uh, we actually had to defend it. And so after five years of operating as Wildebeest, we found out on LinkedIn that there was another agency in New York that um, they started calling themselves Wildebeest. And we only found out whenever somebody tagged the wrong company uh, when they thought they were tagging this new agency that was, that was getting started. So we contacted them and, uh, and said, guys, what's, what's going on? They said, oh, no, we get it. We really like what you guys are doing, but we're going to focus on just this one part of, of advertising. Mm. That's not going to work, guys. So fortunately, whenever we found out about this, they were right in the middle of their trademark application. So they were actually trying to trademark our name and knew that we existed. So that was a pretty, pretty low blow. Um, so we were fortunately able to defend our name and then we got the trademark awarded. So we officially have Wildebeest trademark now. And uh, in, in hindsight, of course, this is something we should have done years ago. For So for anybody listening that uh, you know, got advice that as long as you're doing business with your, with your trade name, that it's no problem, that they're right, it's no problem as long as you catch it during the opposition period if somebody else tries to, tries to take your name. So we got very lucky that we caught it during that time and we're able to, to keep our name that, that we love so much. Wow, that's, uh, I can't imagine if you hadn't, like how much of that would suck, <laughs> obviously. Sure. But like, yeah. oh, it's, it's, it's uh, I've had friends who have had to go through that with various things that they've tried to trademark and other people kind of getting in there trying to usurp an idea or something like that. So I wanna, I wanna shift gears slightly and talk a little bit about um, how you got into this business, actually. How did you, you know, tell us a little bit about your story and how you, you started at Wildebeest. Yeah, for sure. The beginning of my career, I was working in-house at, at big companies, NBC and, and AOL. And we were doing some, really creative things and building products and, you know, working around their core businesses. But I got really motivated whenever we would work with a, a third party agency to come in. And it just seemed like that a lot of the corporate red tape that we weren't allowed to cross internally. Oh, if an agency comes up with it, cool, let's do it. And so, you know, I wanted to do those types of things in house at these big brands and it just wasn't happening. So whenever an opportunity came up for me to move into the advertising space and, and join an agency that I, I really admired, I jumped on it. And so I uh, made that happen and uh, learned the ropes in advertising with, with another agency and um, found opportunities that I wanted to do some things different. You know, the, the biggest is the balance of creative and technology. 
and not just that agency, but a lot of others I've gotten to know, creative calls all the shots. And while I agree that creative is incredibly important, so is strategy, so is technology, you know, so is product, pulling all these things together. And I, I wanted to build an agency that the valued the, the business, you know, not just the creative concept that's going to win you an award at a festival, but the things that are actually going to move your business forward. So starting Wildebeest is about making sure that creative tech and strategy all have a seat at the table whenever we're trying to solve our problems with clients. Yeah, I, I really like that statement. I saw that on your website as well, where you mentioned that, you know, it's you build a better and stronger software when, when creative and design development um, and, and business strategy are engaged from the beginning. So I think it would be useful for us to, you know, talk a little more it's about- like that's another myth you want to bust. It's like, it's not, it doesn't need to be just design driven. <laughs> right. I mean, many agents, many design agencies do focus on creatives more. And I know there are some full service design and dev shop as well, but there is clearly something you have identified and found an opportunity that is helping you succeed. So do you have any experiences around that? Like how do you do the creative and dev and strategy from, from the beginning, because usually people do in sequence, they do the strategy, they do the design, and then the dev. How do you combine them together and how that, how that helps customer in the end build a better software for you guys? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to distinguish between when you're doing campaign work or when you're building a platform or a product. You know, Whenever it's a campaign, then it, it makes a lot of sense whenever creative is driving that and maybe they have a bigger seat at the table. When you're building a product or a platform, something that's evergreen, that's gonna last more than you know a month, like some campaigns, that's when it's really important to, to make sure that, that you have the business strategy and the technology uh, integrated into your product. The worst thing that you could possibly do in a situation like that is for a very talented creative team to, to build something and throw it over the fence and then just tell the, the tech team to build it. You know, you, you lose out on innovation at that point. You also probably aren't attracting the, the best tech talent at that point if all they ever do is just execute on what they're told. Um, so it's been valuable for us to maintain you know, the best talent that we can find and have them stick around because they have a real say in the work that we're doing. Um, when we're building products and platforms, things that uh, need to have that holistic cohesiveness for, for our clients to succeed. So when the new customer comes in, I'm just trying to get a little more tactical here and trying to understand the process side of, the, of your business as well. Um, when you have a new customer, I'm assuming they come up with an idea, they come to you, how does it start? Like how, who engages from your team, who goes, who's the first interaction point for the client? And then what happens next? If you just walk through that process, it would be very helpful, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So like a lot of agencies, we start with the discovery phase and it means a different thing for each agency. What, what is discovery? And for us, it often means research. Uh, it means analysis of the data that we bring in. It means having creative in discovery, it means having uh, our CTO in discovery as well. And 
you know, each project is just so absurdly different that it's it's really difficult to say, um, you know, this person and this person is going to be in, in this meeting and this is how many hours we're going to spend. So we have to analyze what is really important, critical for, for this project and make sure that, that we're keeping that balance. A lot of times that means looking at the data the client has, conducting uh, interviews within the team or, or uh, user tests, being able to understand level setting of where we're coming from and just letting the creative juices flow of having the lead creative and the lead technologist along with me from a business standpoint, making sure that we're solving the problems for the client. I like to think about our, our first two phases, which we, we typically do with projects or discovery and definition. When we're thinking about discovery, we're trying to come up with as many different ideas as possible. You know, this is an additive process that we're, we're pulling everything on the table. When we then move into definition, we're taking those ideas and making sure that they're still in line with the business goals. And so that becomes a reductive process, right? Where we find opportunities to, to really elevate the concepts and elevate whatever it is that we're building by taking this really creative concept and this really creative concept, pulling them together in a, in a, a really unique way. And, you know, this is the, where we can make one plus one equal three in some cases, you know, where, where we really creatively align these in this definition phase. So I feel like those first to really lay the foundation for getting into the, the actual rest of the production that so many other teams might just go straight into, all right, first we're gonna design and then we're gonna build it without the, the discovery and the definition taking that really seriously. It's, it's difficult to do things in a unique way. Interesting. So um, I want to ask, this is very, you know, it's a burning questions in the agency world. Um, I want to learn from you how you do it. You, of course, you mentioned discovery. So once you have the discovery done, right? Once you understand the scope of work, how do you approach um, the pricing? Do you do value-based pricing, fixed-based, fixed-cost pricing, agile development process? How do you manage the whole dev process? Yeah, whenever possible, we always try to just have a, a fixed rate for projects. Um, it, it gets a little tricky when you get into uh, time and materials and, and uh, retainer-based work and, and getting into the nitty-gritty of, of hourly. So we really try to avoid that and try to instead scope as best you can before we even start discovery. You know, when we're negotiating a contract, we do our best to, to try to estimate the range of hours that we're going to need for each of these different phases. And then we put our reputation behind it. You know, we're, we're going to get through it. And if for whatever reason, we're dramatically off, um, you know, we, we would eat that cost. You know, this is what we, we put our experience and reputation on the line for to make sure that we can help our client get across the line, uh, across the finish line. Let me ask you a question about that piece. We've talked a couple of times with a few different people about the discovery component and scoping. I think this is a challenge. Doing the work for the most part is, is once we're in it and we're doing and we're building and we're on board with clients, much easier to have conversations. In that scoping process, are there some key questions that you found that really help you figure out how to put together the right, the right price to charge a client? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we're not we're not going to price a, a giant company different from a small startup. You know, our our cost is our cost, and so the the same calculator that we're using is is going to be applied to one company versus the other. But what's different though is the rounds of revisions that it require, how many stakeholders are involved, the the time that it's going to take from start to finish for each phase. And that's something that during the scoping phase of a project, I can usually find out, you know, how many different stakeholders are involved and, and how many rounds of revision we might expect. And that helps me do uh, as, as best I can with scoping each phase and ultimately the project cost. Um, do you have any example, because you do fixed cost, right? Um, and I heard so many horror stories in both value-based and fixed cost. So I would like to ask you about any, any of your horror stories and any learnings from that, what you could have done better if you failed. I mean, everyone has failed. I don't know if you have, but um, any, any project that has gone bad when doing fixed cost and then that has helped you improve in the next time. Do you have any examples like that? Trying to think of, of an example. I mean, you know, sometimes we dramatically underscope a project. Other times we may overscope it. That's that's very rare. Um, if we do find that we're dramatically over hours on a project, what we anticipated, um, you know, we, we get out in front of that as fast as we can. You know, we, we have an eye on it and, you know, maybe there are more rounds of revision than we expected, or maybe there was a, a technical hurdle that we didn't see coming that, you know, everybody has probably experienced where the, the Apple store changes the requirement or um, uh, the Chrome browser releases an update that, that breaks things. Um, so that happens. And um, a part of that is just internal costs that we need to eat when that happens. If, if, if it's on the client side and um, they didn't anticipate this new round of feedback because you know somebody changed jobs or whatever, then oftentimes our, our clients are receptive to, to change requests and, and getting compensated for it. We're, we're very fortunate that over the seven years, um, we, we really haven't, haven't had really ugly projects where we end up losing a bunch of money on. You know, we can usually get out in front of that, come up with an amicable solution and, and you know, try to make sure everybody comes out clean. So we have uh, an example, an instance I can share and my learning from that. We used to, we still do fixed costs. We, I mean, back in the days, you know, um, I think 10 years ago or so, when we had, in a year, we did probably three or four projects that were fixed costs and they all went horribly wrong. Team estimated, you know, way too less number of hours than they ended up spending. So we started losing money, but we always wanted to put customers first. So we did go ahead and do the, finish the project. But um, what ended up happening from that exercise or that mistake was moving forward, anytime we would do a fixed cost, the team estimates, whatever they put, we try to do three or four times extra and, and build a client. At least we, in, we, we, put our quotation to keep at least three times of buffer uh, of what the team originally estimated. Because fixed cost has never worked, you know, very easily for us, at least for us. And I've heard many other agencies 
um, who have started doing that. And I'm after this, this decision was taken after we spoke to so many other agencies and heard from their you know, suggestions and uh, learnings. So that was pretty good, pretty good exercise and uh, good update that we did in our process. So that has been helping out well. So yeah, it's, it's helpful to, it's also a slippery slope though, when, when you have a multiplier that, you know, like you said, if you triple the hours or, or triple your uh, hourly rate Cost. that you're calculating, whatever, um, that's, that's a slippery slope to get in, but you, you know, the closer you can get to getting great estimates, whether it's you know, bouncing the, the technical hours of CTO or, or creative director or whatever, that's, that's gotta happen. Um, and then what's, what's equally important from that initial scope is just making sure that you're monitoring throughout the, the life cycle of the project. Um, that's something since going remote that we've worked really hard on making sure that we have that, that data elevated for the right people to be able to see it so that our CFO sees um, our, our burn rate and so that our uh, producers as well going through projects, they see up to the second what we've spent on each project. And that's super critical to get out in front of. We could resource things differently. Um, we could work with the client to come up with clever solutions. It's it's like the project isn't made or lost at the beginning in the scoping. You know, you, you do your best you can there. And then it's throughout the life of the project and making sure that you're, you're staying on target. You said something interesting in there. You track up to the second. It's, it's I've tracked it at, and I'm getting super tactical. And then we're going to move on to another topic here in a second. But... Um, do you guys use, do you track up to the second? Do you track within five minutes? So like, and I know this is a conversation I've had with other agency owners too, because we track agencies I've worked at a track, even if we're doing flat rate costs for various projects, I know on average how much hours that I've built into the agreement. And, you know, I openly, we've openly said we're tracking how long our team is working on this. Well, you may not see it as a client. We'll let you know if we're getting to a point where there's a scope creep. Do you, do you, we do within a 15 minute mark? usually are you are you actually tracking to the second <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're not looking over anybody's shoulder and we're not like yeah you know uh, we don't have automated tracking for the time that they're spending but our producers are tracking the the time each week that the contractors and are spending on gotcha. various projects but we have integrations with QuickBooks and we use Airtable specifically with all of our different projects. And so our combination of the, the hourly burn that we're pulling in from salaries and contractors, as well as the, the various cost of goods sold coming through our, our QuickBooks, we pull this into a dashboard in Airtable so that we can see this is the budget we have for a project. This is how much we spent on contractors, cost of goods. And ultimately yeah. here's the percentage, you know, we're 35% of the way through a project but we've spent 50% of the budget. Uh-oh, you know, we need to make some adjustments. Yeah, we have, um, I've done it through a couple different tools. I've, I have seen, I have used Toggle, which you can turn on and off to track your yeah. time. We're currently in Mavenlink trying to figure out the best way to leverage that. So it's, there's so many of these tools out here, but. Um, yeah. For us, we, I mean, we leave it up to the individual contributors and the project manager, you know, if, 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 you know, something doesn't smell right, that somebody was like, you know, spending an absurd amount of hours, then we might look into it. But we, we trust our team. We're small enough where um, we, we know approximately how much somebody should be getting done and how much they should be getting paid. So uh, we're just looking for, for red flags. You know, we're not literally looking over somebody's shoulder. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a scope creep and underutilization. So 
But let's let's shift gears for a minute. So I want to one of the things we we've been talking a lot about in the podcast for the past year and change, almost two years now, is um the idea of going remote and how some of us, you know, we've talked a lot about your systems and your processes and the value your people bring to the team, um, you know, and that collaborative effort. I know when we had spoke originally before our conversation today, you guys had a little bit of a it's a little bit of a challenge going remote. Um, we've heard the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I'm, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, your story and how you, how you approach that. Cause I think it's a, it's, it'll be useful for, I, I think with the great resignations, every it's a, it's a value add, you know, people want that remote work or they want hybrid or they, you know, you have a very clear distinction. So tell us, tell us how going remote was for you. That's the question. <laughs> it was hard, Jesse. It was, it was so, I hear you, Ran. I hear you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think there's a distinction between uh, individual contributors and, and, you know, company leaders and founders that we, we probably have different perspectives. And I bet there's um, similarities among uh, based on seniority in terms of how much you're, you, you enjoyed going remote. <laughs> <laughs> so for the individual contributors, I know it was, it was pretty seamless and worked out for people responsible for P&Ls at, at companies, it became really challenging. There's just a host of different issues. So backing up to 2020, when we were still in the office in, in Marina Del Rey, um, we had a, a really solid year for an agency, you know, like we, we went remote in July was whenever we officially said, guys, we're not coming back to the office, at least anytime soon. The projects that started in person in the office and that finished remote, no problem. We were already doing work from home Wednesdays. This was really just an extension of that, not a big deal. Where things started to get hairy is when projects were kicking off remote and finishing remote. So, it took us a while to really pinpoint what, what was happening, um, but those budgets were getting a lot closer. We were just talking about Varun, you know, we were, we were getting into some, some dangerous territory there and the quality control wasn't at the high level that, that we were used to seeing with our company. So this, this created an opportunity that ended up being a big mistake in hindsight. So we had an opportunity with a client that we had been working with for a couple of years at this point to go in-house to work with them, to help them launch a brand. And because of the uncertainty of the pandemic and trying to take the conservative path here of how are we going to certainly get through the next year, we took this opportunity to go in-house. So we were working 80 to 90% only with that client with a very small percentage with other projects that could come in to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. Over that year, that gave us, gave me the time to really get in the weeds and figure out what went wrong. You know, like why, why were things not as efficient? And um, what I was able to land on was our seniority structure was upside down for remote. When we were in the office, we could we could work with juniors we could pull in lots of juniors and we could guide them and we can help shape them into the the team members that we needed them to be for our team to grow when we were remote those juniors had guardrails that were a little too far apart you know when you're in that green pasture there's 
there's a little bit too much left up to interpretation, you know? And so the, the same skill sets, the same processes that worked in person for us, for more junior individual contributors, didn't work as well remote. So we needed to turn that seniority structure upside down. And since going remote, the, the, the two things that we've landed on was this, we needed to, to level up our seniority and we needed to have way more documented process. When we're in an office and you overhear people and you're going to the water cooler and going to happy hour and all these different things, you, you fill in the gaps. You know, you can be more productive through osmosis of, of getting these, getting through projects and roughly the same process each time, you know, yeah. when you're remote and you only talk when you have these scheduled meetings, you lose out on all that connective tissue. And so we really, over the last year, focused on making sure that we have not only have the process, but have it incredibly documented, like, like going ham on it, man, just like to a fault of, of having like every single step along the way. And with each project, we end up adding, you know, three or four steps that we didn't even think of before because we just assumed it. But in this new great resignation remote workforce, it's just so important to have this process documented so it's repeatable. So when you bring in somebody that, that's new on a project, they are still able to follow the same steps that the, the last person who worked on it did. So um, that was, that's been pretty critical since uh, we, we came back out on our own in, in June and we were uh, able to put these processes in place. And, you know, we had some wins and some losses, but we've, completely course corrected and gotten to a point where we're a far more sophistic, sophisticated organization than we were whenever we were in person. Yeah, I think COVID has uh, changed this for many companies, even for us. I think we never in our lives would have thought of going remote uh, with our company. Like we are almost 300 people in one location, but never have thought that we could go remote. It's not even possible to go remote. And now COVID has forced us to go remote and similar things started happening. Like there were no processes we have identified. Like there are so many missing pieces, like things that were happening in office in person, we, we can't do it now. So we need to have the processes and documentation and all of that. Um, and now it feels so normal. Like everyone is still remote, even though you know, things are getting better, but people like the flexibility. They don't want to go back to office and it's okay. It, 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 it works for us. I mean, it worked for the entire year. It can go on for future as well. So how are you doing now? Are you going back to office? Are you are still, have you adopted the model of remote and are going to stay with that? What's our future course looks like? I think it's a hybrid for us. You know, it's, it's tricky because when you have somebody in Chicago or Toronto or, or whatever, and then, you know, let's say we open up an LA office again, are the people that are remote at this point, like they're, they're at a disadvantage, you know? So in order to, to keep the, the various processes in place and the, the wonderful talent that we've, that we've uh, established on our team and making sure that it's an even playing field going forward, I feel like we're, we're past the point of no return, that we, we need to embrace this and we need to continue just getting the best talent we can regardless of where they're sitting and, um, and potentially using an in-person space just for sales 
or for you know meetings with clients whenever we need to to have have somebody you know we work is getting a lot more attractive again right if you have a membership um, you know suddenly we have offices in LA and and New York and and Toronto now that we can just you know meet with clients whenever we need to yet still reap the the benefits of having a remote workforce. It's uh, as you were talking, we've talked to a lot of people going through this hybrid model. And, you know, we, we've talked, to, you've won quite a few awards. It, it creates an interesting question. I don't know if we're going to answer it here, but if you're a remote company and you're applying for a localized reward, how does that work? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting kind of, and we don't, we don't have to dive into it, but it's kind of an interesting, it changes and creates new opportunities for people to be able to to compete for work that they may not have access to um, previously because they're looking for, you know, it just is, it's an interesting marketing challenge. That's, that's, that's what I'll add there. So yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging. And, and I mean, as, as recent as today, you know, we've had a client saying, you know, can we meet in person for this? Like, actually? Yeah. Yeah. I think we probably <laughs> can, you know, and I've spent years <laughs> saying, uh, we're going to need to do Zoom for now, but you know, I, I think we're back to where we we can meet in person and um, potentially win projects because of our location. I mean, you know, if we're if we're paying the state for for having to sit in California and being headquartered here, then we should benefit from you know being yeah. local. But it's it's kind of you know where your where your headquarters and your your main business operations are coming from. Um. So I want to talk a little bit about offshoring because I know it's a, it's an experience, obviously it's near and dear to our hearts. Um, but tell us a little bit about your experience. I know you, you've tried it. It may not have worked out to the best of, to, to the way that you anticipated, but, um, you know, would love to hear about your experience with, with offshoring and working. Cause I know you work with contractors. Yeah. So early, early on, let's say, you know, five, to seven years ago, um, we tried offshoring, outsourcing some of the work, and and we just it it didn't go so well. The quality control wasn't there. It wasn't the the standards. It wasn't you know people weren't necessarily using the same modern technologies that we were using with our clients, and so it was it was a little bit of a reach for them to to try to try to uh, use the, the the tech that we needed. Um, a lot's changed since then. You know, we just talked about a lot of this. And so if somebody, if you're a remote team, what's the difference between working with uh, an individual contributor in Detroit versus in, uh, in, in Toronto, you know, like it's, there's, there's absolutely no difference. Maybe they're just a little bit more polite if they're in Toronto, but it's, you know, very little difference, you know, no time zones are, are getting in the way. Um, it's, it's become a lot more attractive. And I, I mentioned a minute ago about being a California corporation, there are pros and cons of that. And there are a lot of um, regulations that we need to work around with independent uh, contractors and employees and, and uh, payroll tax and corporate taxes and whatnot. And so uh, it becomes really attractive for us to, to work with people outside of our state as a result of this. Um, it's a difficult challenge, but something that, that a lot of us are facing right now. So we're, we've been forced into it. Uh, we've let our team live wherever they want to live. Some people that were in our office in Los Angeles, we have one guy that moved to the Netherlands and we had another that 
is is still based in the US, but spent time traveling through Europe and was still working on California hours. So the long and short of this is regardless of where they're sitting, if they can work with a significant overlap with our team in California and our, our clients, it doesn't matter where they sit. So we've we've definitely had some some uh, better results lately as a result, but it, it is really important for us to have a roster, to have a team that you know, we work with on every project. We, we don't have the luxury of, of being able to try somebody out on a project. You know, we have a roster that we keep very close. We make sure that everybody's vetted, understands this process that's very important to us and that we can pull them in on a project if we need to. Makes sense. So we have uh, one final question. You as an agency owner, what keeps you up at night? Actually, I have two final questions. I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna ask that one, and then I have one more. I'm gonna wrap up with. So let's let's do the what, what's the big thing that keeps you up at night? I feel like we've touched on a couple of them, but of all, you know, what? Uh... It's it's leveling up, you know, knowing where you are, understanding exactly where you are, understanding where you want to be, and figuring out what the steps are to get up there. Um, at least with our agency. We've had several distinct steps over over seven years of just leveling up to, to different goals that we've set internally and deciding what that next step is and then figuring out what those individual actions that we need to take to get there, that keeps me up every night. You know, it's 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 hurting cats. It's it's just like looking at uh, creative staffing and any HR issues and finance issues. And the, the biggest of all these is, uh, is new business and sales, you know, making sure all these things are in a line. I'm bringing in a ton of projects, but we're short staffed over here. We have people at the beach over here, you know, it's really challenging to keep these things on alignment growing at the same time, because each of those different steps in the, in the plateau are, are different. You know, it, it with an agency like ours, you, you grow and you plateau, and then it's up to you if you're gonna do another one of those or if you're just gonna you know, stay, stay on a straight and narrow. Yeah, so avoiding the knowing, roller coaster. Yeah, it's, it's knowing when you've hit that plateau and what you need to do to, to get up to that next step. Yeah, that, that's an interesting conversation in itself on how owners are dealing with that because sales and growth is in everybody's mind like everybody is kind of i mean we have talked to so many agencies i think this is a common theme that comes out of it like you know future sales how my business is going to grow if i'll have projects in next quarter or not this is like i think a burning desire for everyone like you know give me the clarity around that and everyone has a different thinking process everyone has different um uh, approach to how to deal with that. Um, we don't usually go into that in, in the podcast, but I just wanted to refer that here. Um, so anyways, uh, one last question that I think I have is what's exciting about future for you? What does future look like? Or what are you most excited about? Most excited about how we use this new remote world you know, what, what that does for, for, for growth, for agencies like mine, for 
the clients that are coming in, you know, clients are, are getting bigger and bigger. The challenges that, that we face are getting bigger and bigger. And uh, these, the various new tools that we're, we're using to, to work remote open up a lot of possibilities. I, I talked a little bit about just our, our Airtable integrations and the various dashboards that we built. I'm excited about what these, this level of insights from that type of automation can bring an agency like ours. You know, I'm, I'm excited about companies um, having, having, bigger, having bigger appetites for, for doing new things. You know, it's, it used to be there was just a handful of, of big brands that would really take chances. And now, you know, the most historically buttoned up brands you can think of they're they're open to being a little bit more creative you know like in in this creator world where um you know brands are getting a, a little bit more sassy on social media and you know really adopting having having a, a persona and a brand voice trying to feel less like a, a big concrete building and more like a, a person that's an ambassador for that company so as these brands are opening up and being more just more open uh, that's creating a lot of opportunities for companies like mine that, that that can do some pretty incredible things with artificial intelligence machine learning computer vision natural language processing experiential you know all these things just open up so many opportunities with a, a variety of brands that are right in front of us you said something really poignant in there so these brands don't want to be a big brick building anymore i mean literally they can't be because <laughs> everybody's at home. <laughs> yeah. So they have to think more creatively. It's uh, I was talking to some the other day. We were talking about doing snail mail. I I love a good snail mail campaign. Um, but I I said you can't do snail mail without home address. And we all had a moment like, oh yeah, like you got to get home address because you can't mail one up. You know, even then, and there's that um. I don't I know I'm in left field, but I'm going to sit there for a minute. So do you guys, if anybody watches TikTok, there was this whole thing on TikTok about a month ago where this girl, very deadpan face claims to be a designer who came out of grad school yeah, um, and her logos were terrible, but every, it was hysterical and she, it was, it's supposed to be funny, but she jumped on the bandwagon and all of these huge brands wanted redesigns and used it. 10, five years ago, we would have never, it reminds me of like Oreo tweeting during the blackout during the Super Bowl. It's like these things that you would never had seen. So um, I, I love your answer, looking, looking to the future and pushing the creativity behind it. So, well, this is, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, where folks can find you, Rand, is we have you on the LinkedIn we have uh, your, your personal and your company profile uh, for Wildebeest and you're yourself. You're on the Twitter as well. I, yes, I said that Twitter um, <laughs> at Rand Craycraft. And then the company website is uh, wildebee.st. So for those listening, but thank you so much. Um, that's it. If you learned something today, laugh to tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.